few weeks ago, we started looking at the Gospel of Mark. Don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to read through it. It's a, a wonderful portion of God's Word, giving us a, uh, a very impactful and powerful summary of the earthly ministry of Christ. And so we worked our way through chapter 1, and today we're going to be in chapter 2 of the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be looking at the first 12 verses of that particular chapter. And our theme this morning, as we look at this, is this idea of faith, and specifically the fact that genuine faith might make you look silly, but we're to be okay with that. And you're going to see how that gets dramatically portrayed in this portion of Scripture. So turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 2. I'm going to start reading at verse 1, and I'm going to read down to verse 12, and then we'll keep revisiting these verses along the way. But Mark chapter 2, starting with verse 1, this is what it says. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered there so that there was no more room not even at the door. He was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to come together and to worship you today. Lord, I'm just so grateful for every adult and every child gathered together in this place, and for the fact that you give us the privilege to start off our week looking at your word together, studying what you've communicated in it, seeking to grow in our walk with you through your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, we commit this time to you. We pray that you'd give us wisdom and insight into your word through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that we would grow in our walk with you as a result. Lord, we're just so grateful for what you're doing in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And we just commit ourselves to you now. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the most consequential and life-impacting decisions that the Lord led me to make when I was growing up was the decision to spend my summers working with a Christian camping ministry at the Pocono Mountain Bible Conference. It was a decision that at the time that I made that, when I was a young teenager, most of the people in my life did not understand But what it ended up doing was it resulted in my faith being deepened. It resulted in my experience as a disciple in Christ being really strengthened. I really feel like I was discipled in that context. Also developed some lifelong friendships with other serious Christians and and with church leaders. Those relationships got developed, and I was very grateful for the impact that it had on me. And I remember during my high school and during my college years, many people in my life 
couldn't understand why that decision to work there appealed to me so much. And so many of my friends used to laugh because basically I would work there all summer and then all year long I would tell the stories of everything that took place at camp during that summer until I had new stories from the, the upcoming summers. But they were confused because they thought, you know, instead of, instead of the freedom to do whatever I wanted during the course of the summer months, I was committing to work at a Christian camping ministry for little or sometimes no pay. And in that context, the days would be long, and I wouldn't have much free time, and oftentimes I'd be serving others in ways that, that they may not have even expressed thankfulness for the service. And when I look back at that time, I remember frequently, even at that season of life, just feeling exhausted quite frequently, but I also loved it. And I have to admit that serving in that capacity was a step of faith that didn't make sense to most people in my life, and some thought it was silly, but for me, it was one of the best decisions that I ever made. And very much of, of my personality and the things that I'm doing right now were shaped during that particular season of my life. And I was thinking about that in relation to my son Daniel recently, because Daniel experienced something very, very similar this past summer. He's become very proficient at fine woodworking. If you had the opportunity to, some of you have hired him, some of you have had the opportunity to maybe see some of the things he's posted online about some of the work that he's been doing, but he gets paid pretty well to do crown molding and other forms of fine woodworking, wainscoting, stuff like that. We've we even hired him to do some of that in our own home. You know, we raised the boy and then paid him money to do stuff around the house. I don't know how that works. That might have been, <laughs> might have need to rethink that, but we wanted to support what he's doing. And uh, obviously, you know, that's a skill that does pay rather well, but instead of using his entire summer for that purpose, what he ended up doing this past summer was he chose to volunteer a large portion of his summer and time that he would have been able to earn an income doing that to voluntarily serve at a Christian summer camping ministry, and he was paid nothing to do that. And it was interesting for me to hear some of the comments he would get related to that because it was very strangely reminiscent of several decades prior. And here's the thing, and I know some of you have already experienced this, and if you haven't yet, I'm certain you will. The world thinks acts of faith like that are silly. This world looks at things like that and just says, like, that doesn't make sense because I think most people look at life in this world primarily through an economic lens. And so if something doesn't seem to make economic sense, they think, why would you do it? But frequently, decisions of faith don't make economic sense from a worldly standpoint. From a spiritual standpoint, they make great sense. But from a worldly standpoint, they don't really make economic sense. And because they don't make economic sense, I think many people find themselves scratching their heads saying, like, why would you do it? If there's not some sort of compensation motive or financial motive, why would you do it? And frequently, the person who takes steps of faith can be viewed as maybe fanatical, or eccentric. There might be people in your day-to-day -day life who have thought of you that way. You're not the first that's been thought of that way. And quite frequently, uh, that's the way that the person taking steps of faith gets labeled. And here's the thing. That's okay. Just let it be that way. That's how it is. If the Lord impresses upon your heart the desire to serve Him or glorify Him in some particular way, don't worry about how you look in the process. Don't debate that. Don't over-debate that. Don't worry about how you look in the process. If he inspires you to take steps of faith in any area of life, trust him for the outcome, regardless of how it makes you look, because there will be people in your day-to-day -day life who make a point to tell you, you look silly doing this. This doesn't make sense. 
People look at this and think that you're doing something funny. And when you look at the second chapter of Mark that we read just a moment ago, and we'll revisit a section at a time, when you look at the second chapter of Mark's gospel here, we're given what I would consider a very uplifting account, something that encourages me every time I read it. And it tells us here of several men who took steps of faith that honestly made them look fanatical in the eyes of those that they interacted with. Uh, people looked at this and, and thought, all right, this, this, you know, like, what are you guys doing? What, why are you doing what you're doing? But in the eyes of Jesus, the Scripture is very clear that, that their actions were welcomed and rewarded. So let's revisit some of these verses again, some of the things we just read together. Look at the first four verses. There it says this. It says, and when he returned, so it's speaking of Jesus, it says, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered there so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, when you look at what the Scripture tells us about the, the early days of of Christ's earthly ministry. During those days, he primarily seemed to be operating from the city of Capernaum. Capernaum was a very prosperous fishing town. It was an area that, that really had a lot of wealth related to the fishing industry and, and its proximity to the main trade route that existed between Egypt and Damascus made it a very advantageous area to be working and serving and doing ministry from. I think Jesus was being very strategic in selecting that to be a base of operations during the early days of his earthly ministry as he began teaching and he began gathering followers. And people were looking at what he's doing, but there's a lot of people to interact there and a lot of people coming through there. And so strategically speaking, it was a really good place because of the trade route that existed there between Egypt and Damascus and the prosperity that would kind of draw people in like a magnet, it was a good place to begin a ministry. It was a good place to be doing different things from. It's also a good place for word about what he was doing to start spreading. And it even appears from this passage that Jesus owned a home in the city. I don't know if you ever thought about that. That's something that some people debate. I've heard some people say, well, maybe it was Levi's home. Uh, but when you look at the Scripture here, you know, we don't typically think of Jesus owning property but truthfully, the most natural reading of this portion of Scripture, it lends itself to that possibility, particularly when it says he was what? It says after, after uh, some days, it was reported that he was where? At home. That he was at home. The most natural reading of the passage reads that way. And so word of Jesus' miraculous activity, it continues spreading. People keep hearing about what he's been doing. People start joyfully gathering to hear what he's going to teach, but they're also gathering because they want to see maybe what other miraculous activity he's going to do. Some of them, I think, have already seen some of the things that he's done. Some others have heard of the things that he's done. And so when people find out he's at home, they start gathering again. And they want to know what he might do next, things that they certainly hadn't seen before. And when he returned to his house and word gets out that he's home, people flood to actually begin experiencing what he's doing. They want to see what he's up to. And Jesus, being the pinnacle of hospitality, he invites them in. People are inside the house. Scripture tells us they filled the place to the point where the house ran out of room. I always like Sundays like this, by the way, when we have to add the folding chairs. We have them waiting in the back just waiting, knowing that there'll be some Sundays where we need them. And this morning, I looked at my son and I said, I think we're going to need the folding chairs. 
It's like, oh, it's that Sunday. How many of you had a creative parking option this morning? You know, anyone parked on the grass or on the hill or on the front yard? If you ever need to, if you ever show up on a Sunday and that's all full, just park on the front yard out here. You'll be able to get your car back out, I think. Uh, <laughs> if not, you'll have the first spot for the next week, regardless. But Jesus looks at the group gathered here. He invites them to gather inside the home. They fill the place. The house runs out of room, the scripture tells us. And with this eager audience present, they want to hear what Jesus has to say. You have Jesus preaching the truth of the gospel to this group of people in the city of Capernaum. And he's, he's letting them know. He's helping them understand that he indeed was the long-promised Messiah. He had come to break the chains of sin and death that had held people captive for so long. And he's telling them these things about himself. He's revealing things about, about the plan of God for human redemption. And as Jesus continues teaching, the Scripture here tells us that five additional men show up to see, uh, to see him and to hear him and to, to be part of what's going on. And when I look at this and I see these men showing up, obviously they weren't the earliest people to get there. And that makes a lot of sense when you see what they were up to. I think it must have taken them a little bit longer to get there because one of the men, the Scripture tells us, was paralyzed. He was a paralytic, completely paralyzed, and the other four guys were carrying him there. So obviously, if you're carrying your friend, your buddy, it's going to take you a little longer to get there when word starts going out than somebody that doesn't have to carry anyone or anything, and they could just run there themselves. But you're, you've got four guys here carrying another guy, so obviously they show up to what's taking place at this home a little bit later, but they're carrying their paralyzed friend on a mat. And their hope was obviously to see their friend healed by the touch of Jesus' hand. That's what they wanted to see. And they genuinely believed Jesus could do this for them. They wouldn't have bothered to show up if they didn't believe that. They genuinely believed that Christ could heal their friend. But they get there, and I imagine in the midst of all of this, after carrying their friend, whatever distance they carried him, to their dismay as they show up, they can't get anywhere near Jesus. The place is packed. They can't get anywhere near him. The house is filled. Scripture even goes so far as to tell us that the doorway was blocked. So you couldn't even get in the natural opening to the building. The doorway is blocked. There's no other natural entrance to the building, and you've got these friends that have just carried a guy, however, however long they've carried him, and they're desperate to see something happen for him. They start getting creative. They start thinking about what they're going to do, and with genuine faith, they did something that some might say was extreme. And some might say it was a little bit eccentric, and some might even say it was silly, but they decided, you know what, the only way we're going to get our friend in the presence of Jesus with this big crowd, we got to go through the roof. we got to start digging the roof up. we got to take the roof apart, and maybe we could lower our buddy down to Jesus. We could lower him down with some ropes, and, uh, and maybe then, maybe then he can get healed and experience this kind of healing. Now, I have to tell you, as a homeowner, I hope that there is never a reason to cut a hole in my roof. Like, no, because what good reason can there be? And maybe just install a vent fan for your attic, but I already have one of those. Uh, so I don't want any more holes being cut in my roof, really, for any reason. Uh, my other son, Jay, is a firefighter, and I often kind of debrief with him after some of the calls that he's been on. And one of the things that those of you that, that know, those that are involved in firefighting, one of the things that they regularly do when they're trying to save lives or property is they have to cut holes in roofs, right? They get up on the roof, they're cutting holes in it, they're hacking away, trying to get inside buildings. So that could be a good reason 
to cut a hole in somebody's roof, but I also hope that that's not ever necessary at my property. But again, apart from that, no homeowner is going to feel excited about somebody ripping their roofing materials off, cutting a hole in the top of their building, and uh, trying to do whatever they're trying to do. There's, there's really no reason where, where uh, you know, we would want that to happen under normal circumstances. By the way, when I was a child, my father and my grandfather owned a grocery store in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and I distinctly remember the store getting robbed one particular day, one particular evening. And I remember us, our family, coming to the store the next morning and discovering that over, over the evening, the store was robbed. And you know how they robbed the store? They cut a hole in the roof of the building. They cut the hole right over where the registers were and lowered themselves down onto the counter around the registers, and then they took axes and they hacked apart the registers at my father and my grandfather's store. And there wasn't, I mean, they didn't really keep money in there. There was like a few dollars in there, but they would deposit that in the, in the bank. But people thought they were going to rob the store by doing that. They cut a hole in the roof, lowered themselves down. I still remember being a kid and seeing the, the dirty footprints on top of the counter area and seeing the, the registers just hacked apart. And from that point on, I think it was about seven or eight years old when that happened, from that point on, one of the things that our family always did was at the end of the evening, we would leave the cash registers wide open so that if that ever happened or anything like that ever happened again, people would see, you don't need to hack the thing apart with an ax to discover there's no money in it, right? We don't keep money in it overnight. But I remember that. I saw seeing that as a kid, seeing the hole in the roof, seeing the frustration on my father's face and my grandfather's face. And here, we're told that this... This group of men, these four men, they, lower, they, they cut a hole in the roof, they dig it apart, and uh, they lower their friend down, and then you look at Jesus' response. Jesus, knowing that this world in its current form is not his home, didn't get angry over the fact that they just tore his roof apart. Instead, what does he do? You could see, I mean, I, it, it doesn't directly tell us what his face looked like, but do you picture him smiling? when you see him observing this sort of thing, because I certainly do. He rejoices over the, this act of faith that he sees demonstrated right in front of him. This is an over-the-top expression of faith. This clearly delighted him, and he comments about it when you look at verses 5 and 6 and 7 of Mark chapter 2. The Scripture says this, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Again, what does Christ say? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, admittedly, the words that Jesus spoke to this paralyzed man were probably not expected by those who were there listening to him teach. And they were watching this activity take place. They were not expecting Jesus to make a statement about this man's sins being forgiven. And by the way, most, and I could tell you this as a, as a public speaker, but most teachers and public speakers and preachers and, and uh, people like that, they actually tend to express annoyance when their teaching is interrupted, right? But Jesus didn't do that. So if you're ever public speaking and your teaching gets interrupted, remember what Jesus did, all right? If people aren't cutting a hole in a roof, like, you really have nothing to complain about, right? Um, and he, you know, most, most people, though, would get annoyed with that, but Jesus doesn't do that at all. Jesus responds in a very compassionate manner. And he looks at the paralyzed man with compassion, with tenderness, and he speaks very gentle words, and he simply says, son, your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine being that man in that moment? Son, your sins are forgiven. 
And he hears this from Jesus. And I imagine he's rejoicing over that statement, but then also thinking, I wonder what happens next. My sins are forgiven. I wonder what happens next. And to the man that he's speaking to, these are obviously welcomed words. And here's the other thing that I think about when I look at this portion of Scripture. I don't know what sin this man had done, what sin this man had committed during the course of his life that that may have led to this paralyzed state. There may have been something directly that this man did that contributed to this, but whatever it was, what does Jesus indicate here? Indicates that he's willing to forgive whatever that was and to restore this man. Now, to the religious leaders that the Scripture tells us were also present, they're hearing Christ's words a different way. So the paralyzed man is hearing Christ's words as an act of compassion and tenderness, but the religious leaders, the scribes who are listening to Jesus say these things, they're deeply offended at what he's saying. They're completely irritated that Jesus would would dare to say these words because to claim to have the ability to forgive sins was the same as equating himself with God. So if he's saying that he can forgive sin, what he's saying is, guess who I am, right? That's what he's trying to reveal. He's trying to reveal his real identity here. He's telling them, guess who's in your presence? Guess who you're hearing teach? They were hearing God himself in front of them, but in their minds, they weren't recognizing that. So when Jesus said this, they're looking at this and they're saying, this is nothing short of blasphemy. This is blasphemous. And by the way, under Jewish law, do you understand what the penalty for blasphemy was? It was death. Under Jewish law, the penalty was death. Also, keep in mind, it was the Lord Himself who gave them these laws. In fact, when you look at Leviticus 24, 16, it tells us in in the books of the law, it says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. This was, these were the requirements for ancient Israel. This is what they were required to follow. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the, all the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. These were the requirements. Now, it wasn't the Lord's desire that this get tested. This is one of those things that's in Scripture because the Lord's saying, listen, don't even go in this direction. He's trying to warn people, don't even take your life in this direction in a preventative way so that this doesn't actually have to be carried out. But this was indeed what the law indicated. And so when these scribes, these people who spent a lot of their life studying the law and writing it down, they were familiar with this passage. And they look at what Jesus is saying here, and they're saying... If he's saying this, he's equating himself with God, therefore he's blaspheming. So when they say he's blaspheming, what they're really saying is he deserves to die. He should die for this. But here's the thing. Jesus is God. So for him to make this statement is certainly not blasphemy. It's a pronouncement of the spiritual reality that only one who is God can facilitate. But Jesus knew what the scribes were thinking, I find it interesting. They didn't say these things out loud. They're thinking it. It's in their minds. It's in their hearts. Jesus knew what they were thinking. He knew they were disturbed, and so he calls them out, and he demonstrates the fact that he has the authority to forgive sins. And he demonstrates this in the life, in the life of that paralyzed man, a man who clearly had come to faith in Jesus. But Jesus is about to demonstrate this in a very powerful way. When you look at verses 9 through 12 of Mark 2, it tells us, and immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, 
why do you question these things in your hearts? It, wouldn't that be interesting, by the way, if you were one of the guys there, one of the scribes, questioning Christ in your heart, but then he calls you out based on something you were thinking and not something that you had actually said? Do you think you'd at that point be like, wait a second, how does he know? How does he know what I'm thinking? How does he know that I'm questioning in my heart something? You would think that that would be a moment that these scribes would soften their hearts and come to him in faith when he calls them out based on what they're thinking. But as we know from the Gospels, that's not what they do. They continue to harden their hearts against him. But anyway, Jesus says, why do you question these things in your hearts? And then in verse 9, he says this, and this is, I love when Jesus does this. He does this throughout the course of his earthly ministry, particularly when he's interacting with people who are questioning him. What he does is he asks them questions that they can't answer. He demonstrates the folly of what they're doing by asking them an unanswerable question for them. And so he asks them this question. He says in verse 9, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? So which is easier? Which of those two statements is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, because they're criticizing him because he said, your sins are forgiven. And he's saying, all right, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your mat and walk? Well, he goes on and he says in verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man, that's a reference to himself as the Messiah, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. We never saw anything like this. So again, which is easier to say? Is it easier to tell someone their sins are forgiven? Or is it easier to tell someone who is completely paralyzed to rise, take up their mat, and walk when their body cannot move? Which is easier to say? Well, even though Jesus was being looked at critically for saying your sins are forgiven, that was actually the easier statement to make. Now, on the spiritual level, that's actually the harder statement to make because there's a spiritual reality. But on the, on the physical, visible level, that's the easier statement to make because you could say that and somebody, how could someone figure that out? How can someone visibly tell if that was the case? So he's saying, which is an easier statement to make? Well, obviously, the easier statement to make was to say his sins were forgiven. The harder statement to make would be to tell a paralyzed man to rise and walk, because if that man was unable to do so, if Jesus said that, and then that man was unable to do that, that would invalidate the authority of the one making the statement. That would invalidate his authority. It would show he didn't have authority over infirmities, over illnesses. But in response to Christ's forgiveness and pronouncement of his healing, you have that paralyzed man, what does he do? He rises up. He gets up in front of all this crowd, in front of all these people. He picked up the bedding material he'd been laying on that mat. And I picture that mat, it was probably gross and unpleasant. You know, I, I would even think that after that, it's kind of like, rise, pick up your mat, go burn it, then go home. But basically, it's like, look, you don't need it anymore. Your body works again. It works picked up the bedding material he'd been laying on. He walks out of the house in full view of everyone who was there to witness this miracle. And just as the people were, I mean, you see this in chapter one, they were amazed at the authority Jesus conveyed when he taught in the synagogue. And they were amazed when in that context, he cast demons out of the possessed. And they were also amazed to see Jesus heal people of illnesses. 
But now they're further amazed to witness him restore a body that was completely incapable of moving while declaring the sins of the man who was paralyzed forgiven. And in their amazement, the scripture tells us that they said, we've never seen anything like this. We have never seen anything like this. And when I look at this account, there's all sorts of things I wonder. Obviously, I read what it says, but I'm also trying to put myself in the spot of the people witnessing these miracles and seeing Jesus do these things and hearing Jesus say what he said. And I, I can't help but wonder if many of the people in that crowded house might have actually been familiar with the sins of that paralyzed man. You know, that were they familiar with, with some of the things that he was dealing with? Did some of them grow up with him? Did he have a bad reputation in the city? Had he made himself look foolish at an earlier season of life in a way that was familiar to some of these people? Did he seem like the least likely person to come to faith in Jesus and seek the forgiveness that he received from Jesus and the restoration he received from Jesus? Did he seem like the least likely candidate? Yeah, I mention that because it very well may be possible that that's exactly how you feel about your own past. You know, maybe there's a moment in your life that you would describe as your absolute bottom-of-the-barrel lowest moment, like you've, you know, an area of life or a season of life where you, you feel like you've done irreparable harm to your reputation or irreparable harm to your body or irreparable harm to your relationships or whatever it may be. There's a low moment. We've all got a low moment. Maybe that low moment comes to mind from time to time. Are you still emotionally and spiritually stuck in that moment? You know what I've discovered over the years? 25 years of offering pastoral counsel, that a lot of the things that you end up talking to people about are the low moment that they chose to stay stuck in for decade after decade after decade. A lot of people have that low moment and they never get out of it. They just stay stuck in it. They try not to think about it, but then they end up thinking about it all the time because they're trying not to think about it. And maybe that's you. Maybe that's the spot that you're in right now. If so, you're not alone. Probably most people you know are in a spot like that. They just don't admit it. But here's the thing. Are you willing to accept, like this man was willing to accept, that Jesus would be willing to forgive you and restore you if you came to him in faith If you asked him to touch your life like only he can, do you think he would do it? Do you think it's only for like the good people? Do you think it's only for the people that have a really, really clean, squeaky clean past with no mistakes, no errors, no low moments? Do you think Jesus only likes those people? Or do you think that Jesus says, you know what, I delight to forgive and restore any lost soul, anyone that would come to me in faith, anyone that would humble themselves and say, you know what, I goofed this up but I know you can restore it, Lord, and then welcome him to restore it. Do you think he'd do that for you? I know he'd do that for you. You wouldn't be the first one he's done it for. He did it for this man. Now, of course, there may be people who think you're silly for coming to Jesus. I'm certain there'd be people that think that way. Or maybe there are some people in your life that would think it's silly for you to even believe that Jesus would possibly restore your life or heal you of, of something that is, uh, you know, just something that your mind has stayed stuck in for decade after decade. Here's the thing. Let them think that. Let them think that you're silly for believing those things. That's fine. There's critics and there's skeptics in every crowd. 
But here's the thing, no one admires them, and no one's going to remember their names either. There's no monuments to critics. Nobody remembers critics. They become, they're just completely forgotten. In the annals of history, they're completely forgotten, and they're certainly not admired. They're not the type of people that anyone looks at and says, I want to be just like that critical spirit. That guy was such a jerk to everyone, I, everyone he knew. Like, he could criticize everything so well. I want to be like that guy. Nobody says that, right? Because they're the people who only know how to walk by sight. They reject the miraculous, and then ironically, they wonder why they never seem to experience life-changing moments that leave them in awe and wonder. It's like, well, if you only walk by sight, you can't humble yourself for two seconds to recognize that the God who created you might want to miraculously intervene in your life and rescue you from your lowest moment and rescue you from the sin that you've been chained to and give you a completely new life and raise you up and unite you with Him. You don't think He's going to do that if you don't think He even can do that. And then you wonder why your life is so dull and so boring and you never see anything that just leaves you with awe and wonder and nothing amazes you and nothing moves your heart. That's a hard spot to live in. It's a hard spot to stay in. And I'll tell you, our Lord is compassionate enough to look at that and say, again, even if you're the critic, you're not alone. Most people in this world fall into that category. But here's the thing, Christ will even heal the heart of the critic. And he'll draw you unto himself as well and welcome you into his presence and change your demeanor and give you hope beyond the circumstances that you've been trying to live in up to this point. Because here's the thing, Christ's desire is that we trust him enough to take steps of faith that might not make sense to other people. And you see that happening here in this portion of Scripture. Christ delights to see us express our trust that he alone can solve the most severe of problems and that he alone can meet our deepest needs. If you've been trying to find satisfaction for your soul outside of Jesus and you're wondering why nothing seems to work, the answer to that is the fact that nothing else can work. He's the one who created your soul. He's the only one who can satisfy it. There's a vacancy, a void in our soul that can only be filled by Christ. And until we get to that spot where we recognize that he's the one who satisfies that need, that he meets our deepest need, until we realize that, we're going to spend our lives searching. But once we find that, once we understand that Christ is the one who can satisfy that need, we'll experience contentment. We'll experience what it means to be whole. We'll experience joy beyond our circumstances. And here's the thing, genuine faith, it might make you look silly from time to time. I would imagine sometimes the expressions of faith I've made in my life possibly make me look silly to other people, but there's other things that make me look silly to other people as well. So I'd rather it be the expressions of faith. Might as well, you know, it's like I already look silly, so why not, right? Here's the thing, be okay with that. Be okay with an expression of faith making you look a little silly because the thing is, we're not called to live our lives for the applause of men. We're just not called to live our lives for the applause of other people. We're called to live for the glory of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, through genuine belief in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And that paralytic man, that was the day where he expressed his faith in Jesus Christ, and Jesus delighted to see it. And I'd encourage you, if you've spent your life up to this point, maybe even knowing a little bit about God, but never really knowing Him personally, I'd encourage you today to open your heart up to Him, welcome Him to heal you of whatever that lowest ailment or point or season of life happens to be, 
Invite him to heal your mind. Invite him to heal your heart. Invite him to heal your soul. Invite him to heal the fact that you have been worshiping yourself because you've been treating yourself like you're your own God, and he wants to be your God. Welcome him as Lord. He won't disappoint you. This man did not leave this occurrence or this experience with Jesus disappointed. You won't leave disappointed if you've come to faith in Christ as well. And so I'd encourage you to do that today. Trust in him. Walk with him. Welcome him as your Lord. Don't be like the critics in the crowd. Be like one who's saying, you know, even if I look a little silly, I'm okay with that because I want to get out of life what I'm here to get out. And that's Christ. And if you leave this life united to Christ, you haven't missed anything. You've discovered what life is all about. And that's what this man came to understand, and that's what Christ desires we understand as well. So I thank the Lord for his word and for the privilege he gives us to look at it. I'm grateful for the ways that he reaches into our lives and makes something out of what this world would have considered absolutely nothing. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at your word together today. Lord, I'm just so grateful for the fact that as we look at this portion of Scripture, we see a man that everybody else would have looked at and said, this guy has no hope. And you looked at this situation, and through your son, you expressed compassion to this man. Father, we're grateful for what your son accomplished in this passage. So we see Jesus Christ reach into this man's life We see this man genuinely trust in your son and experience physical healing, but Lord, we know that there's a deeper form of healing than that. Obviously, we value physical healing, but the deeper healing is when you heal the soul. And so, Father, I pray that through your son, Jesus Christ, we would experience that healing, that we would become new men and new women, a brand new creation through your son, Jesus Christ, that you'd completely forgive every error we've ever made and every sin we've ever committed, that you'd remove from our mind the, the sting of the embarrassment of our low points, that we would just commit it all to you and just humbly admit, Lord, this is the direction at one season of my life I've taken my life, but now I'm at a spot where I want something different. So, Lord, we pray that you would make us whole through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the one who came to this earth to rescue us. I pray, Father, for the young and old, for every one of us gathered here today, that this, is, this would be exactly what we would experience, that you would impress upon our hearts and our, our, our minds that we would see this as a need and that we would joyfully respond to your offer, that we would, that we would receive the gift that you freely give us the gift of salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ, as we trust in Him. We don't have to earn that gift. We don't have to deserve it. None of us deserve it. Even those who think they deserve it don't deserve it. We're so grateful for that gift. We're grateful for those that have already received it, and for those that as of yet have not, we pray that today would be the day when you would plant those seeds of faith in their heart and draw them unto yourself with your compassionate voice, just as you did for this paralyzed man. Again, Father, we're so thankful for the privilege to be able to look at your word right now and be reminded of these things. And we're thankful for your presence with us right now. 
We commit ourselves unto you. We thank you for all these things, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.